Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the complicated range of forces driving the protests in Hong Kong that span the ideological spectrum. Before we get started, though, just a reminder that we are facing a fiscal cliff in the new year. If I don't agree to track and spy on the behaviors of my listeners for the benefit of advertisers, then as of January 1st, my ad broker is going to drop the show, and we're going to lose one leg of our financial stool, if you will. Uh, I announced an ambitious fundraising goal this week to nearly double our paying listeners up to a thousand patrons on Patreon, pledging an average of six bucks a month. Eleven new patrons have already signed up in just the past two days, so that's a great start. And now we're down to only 444 more to our goal. Uh, It's a big ask, I know, but I am confident we'll get there. So if you get value out of the show and can afford a few dollars to support us, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft or visit the contribute tab at bestofleft.com. And now onto the show. Clips today come from The Inquiry, The Michael Brooks Show, Unauthorized Disclosure, The Laura Flanders Show, and Democracy Now! I think the young people do need to fight for what they believe in, but they need to fight in a very smart way. Our second expert witness, Professor Steve Tsung, is director of the SOAS China Institute at the University of London. They need to understand how politics operate in China. This is what Steve Tsung spends his working day doing, trying to get inside the minds of the Chinese leadership. We've turned to him to ask how likely it is that China will take military action in Hong Kong, because there is a precedent for this. In 1989, in Beijing, thousands of students held demonstrations for greater political freedoms. By the summer, up to a million were gathered, crammed into the vast open space of Tiananmen Square, and the government sent its tanks in. The troops have been firing indiscriminately, but still there are thousands of people on the streets who will not move back. No one knows for sure how many were killed. Hundreds maybe thousands. Many were carried away by frantic local residents. What would stop China doing the same in Hong Kong? Until now, Steve Tsang says the biggest safeguard has been the economy. He grew up in Hong Kong in the 60s, when it was a quite different place. Early 1960s Hong Kong was a very poor place. You had a large parks of Hong Kong which were very crammed, poor quality buildings for housing. And then, in the 80s, Hong Kong's growth exploded. By the time China took it over in 1997, it was an economic powerhouse. The size of Hong Kong's economy was roughly 20% the size of the Chinese economy at the time. And Hong Kong was still pivotal for the transfer of technology and know-how from the West to China. Hong Kong 2019 has an economy roughly about 3% the size of the Chinese economy. And that's because mainland China's economy has grown so rapidly. Absolutely. And also because since 1997, or even a few years before that, multinationals have started to invest directly into China. 
they no longer necessarily need to use Hong Kong as a middleman to make investments in China. Steve Tsang says in 1997, any wrong moves in Hong Kong could have killed the entire Chinese economy. But today, if the Hong Kong economy collapsed, it would be a very painful loss, but not by any means fatal. Steve Tsang says this new economic reality has a direct impact on how China's government calculates its policies in Hong Kong. They can afford to take risks over Hong Kong now. However, he says that doesn't mean they will. He says the Chinese government has a clear vision for Hong Kong and what kind of place it should be by the year 2047. The date the agreement struck with the British runs out, and China's no longer bound by the one country, two systems model. It wants Hong Kong to be economically vibrant and culturally and politically. Much closer to China, the trouble is, Steve Tsang says, is that this ambition is at odds with the people who are used to enjoying all the rights that citizens in a democracy typically enjoy. How far would China go to try to achieve its vision? Well, the Chinese government will do whatever it takes to try to achieve its vision. So, how do you think China will be viewing the events of this summer? The protests, how big and how serious they became. Well, the initial demonstrations was something which the Chinese government watched with great interest and concern, but it was not being seen as a direct challenge to the authority of the Chinese government or the Communist Party or Xi Jinping, which accounts for the restraints they have demonstrated. The storming of the Legislative Council building and the temporary occupation of it on the first of July, I think, changed things quite a bit for the Chinese government. It looked like a direct challenge to the Chinese state, which will have, he says, altered China's position. Plan A for the Chinese government is to continue to rely on the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region government and police to maintain order. And stability in Hong Kong. There is now almost certainly a Plan B, a plan that would involve much more direct intervention from Beijing, specific instructions sent to the chief executive's office in Hong Kong about how the protests should be policed. And if Plan B doesn't work, and a full-scale independence movement takes root in Hong Kong, then that could be the tipping point. What could a crackdown look like? The preference of the Chinese government is not to deploy the People's Liberation Army, but if all other options should fail, if Hong Kong's police force cannot do the job, then ultimately they will deploy the People's Liberation Army if they have to. They'd send the tanks in. There is already a garrison in Hong Kong, and in fact, the bulk of the garrison has their headquarters within a mile. Of where most of the demonstrations happened in Hong Kong in June, so they didn't actually have to send tanks across the border. They only need to call out the garrison from their barracks. The thought conjures up memories of the tanks which rolled through Tiananmen Square in 1989, but our expert witness believes a military crackdown in Hong Kong would be a very last resort. China has many other, more subtle ways. To tighten its grip on its territory.
Part 3 Big Brother I felt I was being censored out. Our third expert witness, Claudia Mo, used to be a journalist in Hong Kong. One particular incident, I think they tried to withhold my piece altogether until there was a big row within the editorial desk. Hong Kong enjoys a free press, unlike mainland China. But Claudia Mo says there's a creeping mainland influence which effectively restricts what editors are willing to print. You better not offend the Hong Kong and the uh, Beijing governments. And two, for advertising revenue. The Bank of China will never place an advert in your paper or on your uh, telly. So you have to be literally politically correct all the time. She left journalism and is now the head lawmaker with the Democratic Party, which wants political reform in Hong Kong. However, she still finds that mainland influence everywhere she goes. Economically, politically, culturally, we're becoming increasingly mainlandized, and that is Hong Kong is becoming increasingly like uh, just any other Chinese city. Business front, we got the red capital, we call it, from mainland China. And on the cultural front, we got more and more Putonghua, the mainland Chinese official language, rather than Cantonese being used in Hong Kong. Claudia Mo says China has been slowly tightening its grip on Hong Kong for years taking deliberate steps to curtail Hong Kong's freedoms and to bring the territory increasingly into line with Chinese thinking. The rule of the Chinese Communist Party appears to trump Hong Kong's rule of law. Four years ago, five men who ran a bookshop selling gossipy books about the Chinese Communist Party disappeared. Months later, they turned up in prison in mainland China. Two years later, a tycoon vanished from one of Hong Kong's luxury hotels and again reappeared in a Chinese jail. Beijing and the Hong Kong puppet regime here keeps telling you that, oh, everything's fine and it's just wrong, especially in the last several years. The Hong Kong government has become increasingly authoritarian. What does that tell you about who runs Hong Kong? Obviously, it's Beijing, the big brother. With Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, it's puppet, she says. Carrie Lam is widely thought to have mishandled the introduction of the extradition law, which sparked the latest protests, and has had to announce she's shelved the plan. So I reiterate here, there is no such plan. The bill is dead. Her Communist Party bosses in Beijing are probably taking a dim view. She's unlikely to be dismissed immediately. That would show weakness. But the Chinese government may now be moved to take an even greater degree of control over Hong Kong's affairs. China will tighten its grip over Hong Kong. I should think that's what's going to happen. Again, surreptitiously, but in every way, politically, economically and culturally.
Let's go to Hong Kong, where uh, protests have been ongoing against a bill that would have seen uh, extraditions from Hong Kong to mainland China. Uh, Let's start with this clip of the uh, Hong Kong's uh, leader, Carrie Lam, explaining that the extradition bill, as for now, the chief executive uh, Lam explains, is dead. But there are still lingering doubts about the government's sincerity or worries whether the government will restart the process in the Legislative Council. So I reiterate here, there is no such plan. The bill is dead. So what happened was massive protests started last month against the proposed extradition bill, which would have allowed the extradition, as I said, from citizens of Hong Kong to mainland China. This bill threatened civil liberties of Hong Kong citizens and labor activists inside Hong Kong who report on and document abuses inside the People's Republic of China. Authorities, uh, the protest, protesters stormed parliament in July 1st and protesters sprayed graffiti inside the buildings. Authorities began to arrest uh, protesters, claiming more pro- more arrests will be made in the future. Last Sunday, protesters marched to areas frequented by mainland tourists. Police have suppressed protesters with tear gas, rubber bullets, and, baton, and batons. And as you saw there, Carrie Lam has finally, as of now, backed down. Some elected officials with ties to Beijing have asked for amnesty for those arrested. Um, And so what this sort of shows more broadly is that there is obviously limits to Hong Kong's democracy. Beijing wields significant influence in no small part because of the bureaucratic and indirect system of political control. The chief executive of Hong Kong is selected through a 1,200-member election committee, making it easier for pro-Beijing and incidentally pro-business forces to maintain political control. In 1997, the United Kingdom gave up control of Hong Kong, which was still as of 1997, in fact, a colonial asset of the United Kingdom. It was returned to the People's Republic of China, and it was given something called one uh, one country, two systems. Hong Kong could remain its relative, uh, maintain its relative openness and democracy, but it would be, in fact, part of China. And this uh, balance Uh, has been steadily eroded and undermined. In addition to limits on direct democracy, corporate power is also well represented in Hong Kong's parliament. Legislative Council has 70 members with four-year terms and 35 members are selected through geographical constituencies with 35 functional constituencies which represent professional or interest group from the financial services sector to welfare constituencies. And so let's look at the character of these protests. You know, a lot of us have this very strong, I would say, Trotskyite impulse. And this is a Trotskyite impulse that I have profound sympathy with, which is that basically wherever in the world you see people protesting, demanding greater freedom, demanding greater justice, the instinct, and I think almost always the correct instinct, is to sympathize with them. And of course, uh, We don't want to discard that instinct, but we have to complexify what exactly we're talking about here, not in the aim of opposing these protests. These protests are actually very important and very essential, but like the Yellow Vest movement in France, which was a powerful and positive force against Macron, neoliberalism and austerity, but also certainly maintained reactionary and rightist elements. We need to make distinctions 
before we have full solidarity. So the protests are not one social force. They include young people and students, liberals and socialists, as well as almost Hong Kong uh, localists or nationalists. It should be noted that the right-wing variant of localism has a strong anti-immigrant bias, and it preaches a Hong Konger-first ideology. They either want Hong Kong independence or a return to British rule. They use horrific terminology to describe immigrants, including the term locusts. This is obviously on the incredibly negative side uh, of some elements of the protests, although, of course, their concern about maintaining openness uh, is obviously valid. Finance and business are split. Some of the wealthy class are afraid of submitting to Communist Party power and regulation. However, others oppose protests and have close and synchronized business relationships with the mainland and with the Communist Party. Beijing wants to be able to increase its ability to punish dissidents in Hong Kong. And if Beijing is able to extradite journalists critical of the party and labor activists, it will have a chilling effect on liberated democracy, as well as on necessary documentations on events and labor abuses inside the PRC. So look, there's multiple tendencies here. And there's also, as with all of these events, you will have rightist forces in the United States that want to push almost at this point, we could say a new Cold War focused on China. They will use any of these events and including the absolutely rightful concerns of, as an example, labor activists to try to push a nationalistic right-wing xenophobic approach approach to China here. This is another pitch, uh, another trap that we need to vigorously resist and avoid. So there's multiple tendencies inside this movement from liberal to socialist to Hong Kong localists. Western simplifications ignore some of the right-wing trends and even some of the outright xenophobia of the protests. Pro-Beijing simplification ignores the genuine need for change in Hong Kong and the undemocratic oligarchic political structure of the former colony, which let's face it, there is a reason why the chief executive herself initially tried to pass this pro-chilling effect bill on behalf of Beijing, as is usually the case with China we can note and acknowledge has lifted an unbelievable amount of its own citizens out of poverty in the last couple of decades, but has obviously developed a close and sustained uh, relationship with business and oligarchs across the globe. And there's no difference in its relationship with Hong Kong. So we are in total solidarity with democracy activists in Hong Kong, with labor activists, with those that don't want to be under the hegemony of any large state. And we also reject any reactionary tendencies here that would try to absorb the correct resistance in Hong Kong with a reactionary approach to the People's Republic of China globally and in the Asia Pacific specifically. Today's episode is sponsored by the Forecast Fest podcast. It's your source for the latest election news from debate previews and recaps to analysis of how voters are leaning in the early primary states. Every week, 
Hosts Harry Inton, Kate Baldwin, and John Avlon bring you all the data and analysis you need to get smart and stay smart this election season. Each episode, they'll give you the most up-to-date forecast for who's ahead and behind in the race for the White House and for Congress. But they won't just give you the what, they'll also give you the why. So you want to understand how the impeachment inquiry might affect the 2020 presidential race. You want to get into the weeds on jungle primaries and polling methodology. You want to get unique political analysis rooted in data on major campaign issues like healthcare and climate change. From historical context to the latest polling, Harry, Kate, and John have you covered. Subscribe now to the Forecast Fest and stay informed of every twist and turn on the road to November 2020. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Something that's been completely missing from um, the coverage is the elements of these protests that are very separatist and also extremely xenophobic about China. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, there's a so Hong Kong for a long time. It, it has been, you know, it was it, it's a it's still a very wealthy wealthy city, but compared to mainland China, it used to be, you know, like like the. Just a just a, a factoids. Back in 1993, the Hong Kong GDP was about 27 percent of the entire Chinese GDP. I mean, just that one city. So, so I remember wow. growing up in China, China in 1980s, and I just remember Hong Kong is like a magical paradise. You know, like people are wealthy. You know, they have so much money, and 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 because. But in 1980s, China was very poor. It just emerged out of Cultural Revolution. You know, people were were uh, very, I mean, like live living in very poor conditions. And and at the time, a lot of the you know Hong Kong men, uh, you know, you know, like even even uh, if you're a Hong Kong taxi driver, it doesn't matter. You, you can cross the border into mainland and set yourself up with a couple mainland. Chinese mistresses, and that was common. That was very common. Um, and and ironically, you know, like so that that but that started to change um, in more recent years as, as mainland China grew more wealthier, and and whereas you know the Hong Kong economy uh, is kind of caught in this kind of I don't want to say economic stagnation, but it's not. Comparatively speaking, it's not doing as well because you know Hong Kong is facing uh, is facing very similar economic situation that uh, the whole wider West is facing because you know Hong Kong used to be a manufacturing center and then in 1980s after China opened up all the Hong Kong capitalists then moved their factories from Hong Kong into China where the, the, the labor cost is much cheaper. And so all the manufacturing of Hong Kong got hollowed out. And what Hong Kong got left with was, you know, um, finance and real estate. And, you know, in a very highly financialized economy, you know, the, the Hong Kong youth is facing increasingly diminished economic prospect because, um, you know, like housing price in Hong Kong is ridiculous. And, and part of the reason, you know, Hong Kong government is responsible because, uh, you know, Hong Kong government derived most of its revenue from land sales to developers. So Hong Kong government has an incentive 
to ration out the land to you know sell them at artificially inflated prices. And this was done because back in the British colonial days, the British Empire demanded its colony to be self-sustainable, right? So so Hong, then the Hong Kong colonial government found this way to you know keep taxes low by um, you know under the British law, all the land in Hong Kong belonged to the government. And then the Hong Kong government then parsed out small portion of land to be developed to sell to the developer. So, so over time, there's this collusion between the Hong Kong government and the the real estate developers to keep the land price high and the real estate price high. And this was not changed after 1997 handover because you know one country two system. China was not to interfere in the internal affairs of Hong Kong. So in a way, a lot of the British colonial structure was passed down intact, you know, kept in preserved in Hong Kong, and 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 so Hong Kong has a lot of economic inequality. I mean, there were people in Hong Kong literally living in cages because people can't afford housing, and 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 you know, that's that's increasingly you know frustrating for young people because. Uh, you know, a lot of Hong Kong youth right now, they live with their parents with their 20s and up to their 30s because they can't afford a place of their own. So I mean, a lot of it sounds like it sounds it sounds a lot. No, but like, I mean, it sounds a lot like what you said, where it's like what's happening in the West, where it's sort of like the decay of neoliberalism and yes. no prospects for the future. And it's like seems like it's much more extreme in Hong Kong in terms of like I've just from videos I've watched of like the housing there where it's like these tiny rooms are like apartments. Um, it's the result of like capitalism, <laughs> not China. Like it's like the pe people do have these like legitimate economic grievances, but like you're saying, it's not China's fault. It's actually the result of like a decaying Western global order of capital. Yep. That's, that's what the Hong Kong is famous for. You know, Hong Kong always gets extolled in the, Western neoliberal circles as this like uh, this uh, beacon of you know free will and capitalism. Well, th this is what you get, and 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 but what happened was all these discontent then is get channeled into this very ugly nativism again, very similar to what's happening in Trump's America today. You know, like you know when Americans, a lot of Americans faced with economic uncertainty and anxiety. What do they do? They blame Mexican immigrants because that's so easy to do. And, and in Hong Kong's case, you know, instead of Mexicans, they blame the mainland Chinese immigrants. So there is a very strong native uh, sentiment in the Hong Kong protest. And there are a group of people who are advocating Hong Kong, like a separatist Hong Kong identity, Hong Kong, um, Hong Kong independence movement. And, you know, of course, they're all backed by, um, you know, Mark Rubio, uh, Pompeo, and Pence. You know, they have... Uh, what, you have no, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't, they wouldn't support something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, because the poster child of Hong Kong protests, you know, is Joshua Wong and Denise Ho. Uh, you know, they actually were recently in U.S. were talking, they, they testified in front of Congress. They, they, they got introduced by Mark Rubio, right, who is introducing this Hong Kong Human Rights uh, Act. Basically, it says United States will um, decide 
on an annual basis whether Hong Kong remain autonomous enough from China. And if 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 U.S. finds that Hong Kong is not autonomous enough from China, then U.S. will place sanction on Hong Kong. And this is supposed <laughs> on Hong Kong. Wait, on Hong Kong. On, on Hong, Hong Kong. Yes. Yes, on Hong Kong. And this is supported by the Hong Kong protesters. And and I'm like, this is mind boggling. You are asking this, uh, you know, this neoconservative like regime change cheerleader Marco Rubio to place sanction on your city. Um, <laughs> and, and it's it's my because you know for US, you know, US of course is playing its own for its own interest because Hong Kong is still a very important financial center for China. A lot of the mainland Chinese companies they go to the Hong Kong stock exchange and to list their shares and they you know use Hong Kong as a very you know important financial hub. And what Mark Rubio's Hong Kong the uh, Human Rights Act is doing is essentially another way of placing economic sanction on China. And yeah, you know what's amazing? I mean, it's so typical. Like, it's the same shit with um, Syria and Venezuela. You have these, like, I mean, in the case of Hong Kong, they actually still live there. But, like, with Venezuela and in Syria, it's, like, these exiles who, like, live in the U.S. usually. But, yeah, they're, like, demanding sanctions, and then sometimes the U.S. bomb or invade their country. Um, but what's, it's like it's always funny how it bites them in the ass because like with Venezuela, you have Adobe saying like we're going to deactivate all Venezuelan accounts to comply with U.S. sanctions. And now all these opposition Venezuelan people are like, but wait, then I can't use Photoshop. And they're like really upset about it. <laughs> Which I don't know if you guys saw this. But anyway, yeah, it's like these people are so short sighted. It's like you're going to punish your own city. Like, are you insane? Yeah. <laughs> it's going to undercut propaganda, isn't it? Yeah, I know. For, for Venezuela, that's what I was thinking, too. I'm like, how's the opposition going to make their propaganda now? They can't access the premiere. <laughs> what can we in the U.S. learn from what's going on in Hong Kong? Here to discuss that. We have Joy Ming King, a member of the Laosan Collective, which is a project of young Hong Kongers inside and outside of Hong Kong, and Michelle Chen, a labor historian right here at the City University of New York, a contributing writer at In These Times and the Nation, and the co-host of Belabored, a must-listen-to podcast from Dissent Magazine. So let's start with you, um, Joy Ming. What is Hong Kong to you? Why do you care? And how do you see the story here in the diaspora? Hong Kong is home for me. I was born and raised in Hong Kong, spent most of my life there until I came to the U.S., uh, now to be in university. I think that Hong Kong's struggle right now has a lot of relevance for not just the diaspora, but for uh, the rest of the world in the 21st century. How come? I think that the struggle of Hong Kongers deals with the logic of capital, of borders, state, police, immigration, identity, all of these things that we take for granted are being challenged, and the ways that we are challenging these conceptions have relevance for the rest of the world. Well, you laid out a great list there. I mean, we should reiterate point by point, but let's just pick one. You said it has to do with the logic of capital. What do, what do you mean? So Hong Kong has historically served as this entrepot, a port city uh, that serves as an interface between China and the West. And so historically, it has been this conduit for finance capital, trade capital, 
to、uh, enter China and, and get out of China. And so, to this day, there still remains a very tight collusion between the business elite and the government, and that is a legacy of the British colonial period. And a result of that, one consequence is that the real estate and the finance industries have a very strong grip on our economy, driving land prices up. So that many people actually are forced to live in caged homes,、mm. which are、uh, very tiny spaces to just fit your bed and your body, and, and you pay rent for that space, while you have luxury apartments for you know the super rich. So Hong Kong is one of the most unequal societies in the world. And it is directly a consequence of this historical、uh, relationship of capital and the state. And this is something that Hong Kongers have in mind very strongly as they continue the struggle against the extradition bill and also for greater self-determination. And just to sort of put a pin on it, this did start with a discussion of a proposal around extradition of people accused of crimes, extraditing people from Hong Kong to mainland China for. Trials for prosecution for trying. How has it evolved? How has it kind of emerged that this struggle has gotten so much bigger? So from the very beginning, everyone knew that this extradition bill proposal was not just about fixing some legal loophole, not just a small technicality. It was very clear to everyone in Hong Kong that this was the latest step. In China's larger project that it has been doing for the past 20 years since the handover, to assert more and more control over Hong Kong, to reduce Hong Kong's autonomy that China had promised to Hong Kong, and to quash any efforts at self-determination and democracy.、Uh, the reason why people understood this was because the extradition bill would threaten anyone,、uh, regardless of your residency status or citizenship, if you are wanted by China for a certain number of crimes. In Chinese law, then、uh, the Hong Kong government, under this、uh, revision to the bill, would be allowed to extradite you to China to stand trial, where the、uh, human rights are routinely trampled upon and the rule of law is not guaranteed. And so, the way that this connects to the logics of capital and state that I was just talking about is that people know that democracy by itself doesn't pay the bills; rather, it's an instrument to fix our problems. And people see rising inequality, rising real estate market prices, environmental degradation, very poor labor rights, and they see democracy as an instrument to rectify a lot of these structural inequalities and problems that they face on a daily basis.、Mm, I mean, it's so fascinating. Listen to you talk about this. I mean, this is not the way most people are getting this news. I mean, hearing it from you, I'm hearing. Hong Kong as a kind of liminal space that we could point to many having to do with the relationship of, of capital and money and people, but also with respect to democracy, human rights. It's about a place in transition. So, what about the new internationalism part? What about that question of of what does allyship look like and solidarity look like? What are we learning? Are we seeing any new models? I mean, you're organizing in some interesting ways. The, the Hong Kong diaspora that's organizing around the protests using some interesting tactics. The Hong Kong diaspora, we we have a, a, a unique position in this division of labor, I guess, of this movement, being able to、uh, interface with not just the West but also oppressed peoples around the world who are struggling very similarly against similar problems. For instance, the recent movement in Puerto Rico that was ultimately successful. When that was happening, people in Puerto Rico were looking to Hong Kong, and the Hong Kong people、uh, in their struggles were looking to the people in Puerto Rico. And even now, there's a, a kind of correspondence between these two peoples because the struggle is the same. They're both kind of marginal, peripheral places that have been subjected to a sort of colonial rule by a core 
uh, um, hegemonic power. Being in the diaspora means that we can have the time and space and the resources to look outwards to what is not usually available back home in Hong Kong to build these connections with oppressed peoples around the world. And yeah, to develop what Michelle was talking about, a more internationalist uh, way of thinking about this struggle, not just as a nativist uh, a struggle for um, autonomy or, or human rights, but rather connecting it to larger um, problems around the world. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp, the online service that gives you unlimited access to your own fully licensed therapist via phone, chat, and video. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional in-person therapy, and there's the added convenience of doing it right from home, but you still get the same professional help from fully accredited therapists. There's a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counselor network, which you may not be able to find locally. And since you can switch to a new therapist at any time at no extra cost, you can be confident that you'll find someone who fits your needs. You can have your meetings to fit your schedule, you can message your therapist at any time, and you'll get a timely response. Go to their website and check out what BetterHelp users are saying about the service. New testimonials are posted daily. And they're giving Best of Left listeners 10% off your first month of therapy when you go to betterhelp.com slash B-O-T-L. That's betterhelp.com slash B-O-T-L for 10% off. We're talking about media, and obviously this is dominated. And, and listening to you speak, Carl, there's a couple questions that come to my mind related to the story that has dominated the last uh, week or so here uh, in the United States, particularly. Uh, it just you can get into it, but it was the Houston Rockets general manager Daryl yep. Morey sending this tweet about China. You, you can get into exactly what the fault lines are here in what, what, I don't know if you can call it a feud, if that's an accurate word or not. I don't really like that word. But my question for you yep. is, how does this, because it seems like what really the Hong Kong protesters are turning to this NBA controversy to give them a second win, to give them another yes. cycle in their protest. Yes. I mean, right now there's such a large perception gap between China and U.S. I mean, like, largely, I hold the Western media responsible. And, and um, you know, what the mainland Chinese people see, you know, they saw, um, you know, like a month ago, that, that ugly scene at the Hong Kong airport when a couple mainland Chinese travelers were accused by the Hong Kong protester of being um, somehow undercover cop or, or, or Chinese spy. They were they were being zip-tied, detained, and beaten in the airport for like four to five hours. One of them got beaten unconscious a couple of times. All this was live stream, right? And and even even CNN had live streamed it, right? And, and, and a lot of people in the U.S. don't know, but CNN is actually not banned in China. People in China can access CNN, right? So my cousin, my mainland Chinese cousin, in China, he watched this live. He watches mainland Chinese guy being beaten in the airport for four hours. And, and when the paramedics tried to reach the guy in the airport, the paramedics was denied by the block by the Hong Kong protesters, you know, preventing him from getting medical help. Right. And, and this is this this is what the mainland Chinese people 
see about Hong Kong protests. They they see this this this, this really ugly anti mainland sentiment, right? And and so given that, given that how they understand the Hong Kong protests, you have you know, and you have Dallas, you have the Houston market, which is huge, insanely popular in China. You know, you have this uh, <laughs> morale guy getting on Twitter and says, I stand with Hong Kong, right? So, I mean, to the, to, to the mind of American, they were probably thinking, oh, Morrow is just standing up for his freedom of speech. He's standing up with freedom for freedom and democracy. But for the mainland Chinese audience, you know, who sees the Hong Kong protesting at different angle, at different light, they see this American standing with all the protesters who beat mainland Chinese for being mainland Chinese for, for hours. And, and so, so understandably, they are very upset. And I mean, like, this is, there's a genuine grassroots, uh, you know, unhappiness with what's being said, right? And, and granted, you know, Chinese government can be very heavy-handed. Uh, you know, they, like I, I don't uh, agree with you know, like the 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 the, the Chinese uh, TV uh, banging banging the broadcast of NBA or whatever, right? But 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 the, the grassroots sentiment is real in China. And again, I can understand why in U.S. it's such a big deal because you know, in, in U.S. people held freedom of speech to be sacred, right? But you know, again, you have to remember this is the U.S. we're talking about. You know, did we really do we really have freedom of speech at workplace? Well, you know, and, 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 well. Also, I'd like to point out. I'd like to point out that in the U.S., the like NFL lost its shit because some players wouldn't stand for the anthem. Yeah. Like, yes. I mean, give me a break. Like, it's like you guys capitulate to your fans too, yes. and also the general I, managers and the coaches, like. Like, let's not pretend that we're, we actually have, like, complete I mean, freedom of speech in the U.S. is definitely better than a lot of places. But we also have a mob mentality, especially when it comes to business. Yes. And, and, and you know, what, you know, what U.S. Americans really complaining about, if you really come down to it, right, it's this these business, uh, you know, now, now there's also a big uh, controversy around Blizzard. Right, because yes. apparently Blizzard they 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 banned a, a Hong Kong player who uh, made some statement about the Hong Kong protest. Right, so you know Blizzard did this proactively <laughs> because they don't want to lose their mainland market because World of Warcraft and all these Blizzard games are hugely insanely popular in in China. What by what you really think about you know when all these Americans are up in arm about oh China is is censoring our entertainment. What they're really saying is, what really against is capitalism, right? <laughs> because yeah. American corporation, their bottom line is make money, right? And and they guess what? They they make they 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 make woodos of money in China. They don't want to lose that market, <laughs> so they try. To I mean, China. yeah, the population in China customers. is really big. It's a lot of fans. <laughs> it's a lot of yeah, customers. They're, they're but, trying to please their customers. So I mean. People, you know, you know, people got to think about what you really should be complaining about. Should be <laughs> direct your anger to her. It's capitalism, right? This is capitalism. I mean, like we, 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 like there, I saw a tweet which is classic. You know, people think, you know, this is about, uh, you know, U.S. This is really about U.S. Uh, being a capitalist 
democracy than then realize is really just being U.S. being a capitalist, and and that that's what it is. It's it's it's, it's capitalism, and, and and people suddenly become uncomfortable. It's like oh. That that is bad because now now like、uh, we have to somehow accommodate the Chinese view. You know that's that's terrible. As China holds the largest military parades ever in Beijing to mark 70 years of the People's Republic of China, we turn to Hong Kong, where police escalated violence against protests Tuesday by firing live ammunition at demonstrators. In a video of the police shooting posted online, an 18-year-old protester named Tony Tsang is seen in a group of people who are chasing a riot police officer. They tackle him to the ground, appear to beat him. Then another riot officer approaches with his gun drawn. The teen appears to try to hit him in the. The officer fires at him at point blank range, shooting him in the chest. Police also fired tear gas and water cannons while protesters were seen throwing Molotov cocktails. The teens reportedly in stable condition. The Hong Kong police commissioner said he has been arrested, but they'll decide later whether to press charges. Hong Kong officials defended the use of live ammunition, saying the police officer feared for his life. Ninety-six protesters were arrested Tuesday on rioting charges. The Hong Kong public. Doctors' Association spoke out against the police for failing to use less lethal weapons, such as beanbag rounds. The principal at the teen's school said he would not be punished and would keep his place in the school. His schoolmates denounced the police actions Wednesday during a sit-in of hundreds of protesters outside his school. He often said that he would rather die than be arrested, because those police officers are inhuman. After the arrest, they would beat you with no reason. Unfortunately, it happened to him. He has sacrificed a lot for Hong Kong, but we cannot reach our aim. As his schoolmates and brothers, we are very proud of him. But we should think, even when secondary school students start to come out and fight against unfairness in this society, isn't there a serious problem in this society? Protesters vowed Wednesday to continue demonstrations. A new focus of the protests has been Chinese businesses and those with pro-Beijing links. Demonstrators have also targeted Starbucks after the daughter of the local company that operates the coffee chain stores condemned protesters at the UN Human Rights Council. At least 96 protesters were arrested. On Tuesday, on rioting charges, this comes as Reuters reports there are now up to 12,000 Chinese troops in Hong Kong, twice as many as when the protests began. For more, we go to Washington D.C., where we're joined by Kevin Lin, China Program Officer at the International Labor Rights Forum, was born and raised in Beijing, has spent years researching the labor movement and civil society in China. His most recent piece is for Jacobin. It's headlined Four Points on the Hong Kong Protests. He's also author of How Should the U.S. Left Think About China? Welcome to Democracy Now, Kevin. Start off by responding to、um, what's happening right now in Hong Kong, the shooting of the protester, and what all this means、uh, now on the 70th anniversary、um, of China. Uh, thanks, Amy.、Um, I think the the shooting,、uh, as you mentioned, is the first time the Hong Kong police used live ammunition against a directly、uh, shooting at a protester for the first time. Uh, since the start of these protests、uh, in back in June, and they really、uh, represent a huge uh, escalation um, of of violence. However, we have seen in the last、uh, several weeks、uh, the the escalation of of、uh, police violence 
uh, are really pointing towards, uh, you know, a, a huge increase in the use of coercive forces by the police. Uh, the uh, Amnesty International has done a really good investigation uh, documenting uh, an alarming pattern of uh, arbitrary arrests, um, beatings, and torture uh, of protesters in detention centers. And we have also seen a really good report by the New York Times uh, uh, pointing to the fact that, that there are police officers um, undercover posing as protesters in order to uh, arrest and beat protesters. So we have really beginning to see a huge escalation of, of police violence against the protesters, and it's hugely symbolic uh, that this happened at a time of uh, the military parade uh, that commemorates the 70th anniversary of the People's Republic of China. Um. Reuters is reporting that China recently doubled its uh, troop presence in Hong Kong. The significance of this, Kevin? Uh, I think this is what a lot of people have been uh, really fearing, um, that there will be a Tiananmen-style crackdown, uh, even though uh, I think uh, our analysis is that this is very unlikely, uh, because any military crackdown in Hong Kong would really uh, you know, cre uh, lead to huge casualties, civilian casualties in Hong Kong, but also will basically end um, uh, Hong Kong as we know it as a, as a uh, semi-autonomous and, and uh, uh, region with relatively uh, uh, political freedom. Um, so, uh, you know, even though we do not uh, think or we do not anticipate a, a huge military crackdown by the Chinese government, uh, the doubling of the troops and also all the threats uh, issued by the Chinese government are hugely concerning. Kevin Lin, you grew up um, in China. Um, can you talk about, on mainland China, in mainland China, the response to the Hong Kong protests? Um, you've written a piece, Four Points on the Hong Kong Protests, and talked about how the left should think about what's happening right now. Can you expand on that? Sure. Um, I think two things. Uh, on the uh, response uh, and uh, the, uh, the perspective of people uh, in mainland China, uh, what we see um, over the last few months is an uh, attempt by the Chinese government to control the narrative of what's happening in Hong Kong. Um, basically, independent reporting um, is almost not possible in mainland China on Hong Kong. So there's only one really major source of news, which is the state-owned uh, media. Uh, so that uh, means uh, the Hong Kong protest is portrayed almost exclusively as this senseless mob violence uh, without understanding, without providing the context and understanding of the reasons why there's such a huge uh, mass-based protest movement that at one point involved one to two million demonstration, demonstrators on the street back in July. Um, so the result of that is there's an increase in nationalistic sentiment uh, in China right now, and uh, a lot of hostility uh, in mainland China toward uh, the Hong Kong protest. Uh, in terms of what the left uh, should approach this issue, I think there is a legitimate uh, concern about uh, U.S. or U.K. Uh, influence. Um, there's a concern about color revolution or foreign interference. Um, but I think, um, even though I think there, that is a legitimate concern, uh, we cannot ignore the fact that this is a huge 
massive uh, social movement that goes beyond, you know, there could be elements, uh, people in the movement that look to the U.S. and U.K. for support, but the movement as a whole has very legitimate concerns uh, that, that are uh, found to be found in uh, the political dynamics and development in Hong Kong itself. Uh, Kevin Lin, you've written that um, Xi Jinping has gained a lot of legitimacy in mainland China by cracking down on government corruption. What's the role of Hong Kong in corruption in mainland China, specifically in the banking sector? Absolutely. Uh, I think one of the, the intentions and one of the justifications that uh, that the extradition bill that which sparked the protest, the reason it was introduced, uh, at least the justification of that was uh, there were there will be criminals uh, fleeing from mainland China to Hong Kong, and there needs to be a law uh, that uh, allows that enables uh, the Chinese government, mainland Chinese government, to extradite um, uh, criminals, uh, especially corrupt officials, uh, from Hong Kong. Um, and what we see uh, right now is, uh, as you, you pointed out, that Xi Jinping has been a pretty popular leader within China uh, because of the corruption campaign, anti-corruption campaign, but also because uh, he has been uh, adopting a much more assertive uh, leadership style, which, uh, at least on the surface, uh, tried to uh, sort of promote uh, nationalism and try to assert China's influence uh, both in the region and globally. And I think that has been uh, a issue uh, that it kind of colors uh, how Chinese, mainland Chinese uh, population uh, public looks at Hong Kong because they see Hong Kong as this kind of troublemaker that is that is um, uh, being manipulated by the West against China. Mm. And can you talk about the inequality in Hong Kong and whether that has anything to do with the intensity and the duration of the protests? According to Oxfam, inequality in Hong Kong is the highest it's been in some 45 years, almost half a century. And what is the reason for that? Absolutely. So Hong Kong uh, is one of the most uh, unequal society uh, Anywhere, uh, and this is not accidental. Uh, Hong Kong, which was a, a British colony for a uh, hundred years, uh, was set up exactly as a trading port, port, and as a financial center later on. So, it, inequality is is almost uh, built into the system, in the sense that the finance, uh, financial capital, and uh, property owners are have are, are very very powerful, and as a result of that. Uh, the the population there there is a lot of wealth, but there is a huge amount of inequality as well. And inequality coupling with, for example, housing issues, that there is uh, almost a housing crisis, especially for young people who really couldn't afford owning their own houses, apartments, and and as well as uh, fairly poor economic uh, job prospect for young. Uh, young people, I think those factors uh, do have a huge influence on um, on creating in creating uh, discontent in Hong Kong society, which fueled this uh, protest. So some have suggested that the Hong Kong protests uh, have been spurred by U.S. support. Some protesters have been carrying the U.S. flag, the British Union Jack, um, have met with Trump administration officials, come to Washington. What's your response to that, Kevin? 
Uh, I think there are two two points to to be made. Uh, the first is that um, there are we should recognize there are certainly uh, individuals, activists, and groups in the movement, which is again very massive, uh, that look to the U.S. and U.K. for international support. Uh, I, I I think in the long term, um, from progressive perspective, uh, it's not going to help uh, Hong Kong uh, in the long term. But we can also understand in the short term, uh, this is kind of driven by desperation when uh, they confront a very powerful Hong Kong and Chinese authority. Uh, but I think we should also recognize the, the people that come to the U.S. to look for support, uh, both the, the so-called pan-democrats, those are the democratic uh, parties and oppositions in Hong Kong, as well as the uh, young, uh, useful youth leadership that came out of the umbrella movement in 2014, they are no longer uh, the leaders in the current protest movement. They themselves recognize and have acknowledged they are no longer the leaders. Uh, so even though they could be support from the U.S. government or U.K. government, um, they are really, uh, the people they, they're supporting are really no longer the leaders. We've just heard clips today, starting with the inquiry laying out some of the history of Hong Kong and the various ways China is pulling the strings. The Michael Brooks show explained why supporting the Hong Kong protests is more complicated than it looks at first glance. Unauthorized disclosure went into more detail on the various factions, some nationalist and outright xenophobic, taking part in the protest. The Laura Flanders Show discussed what we can learn from Hong Kong and what it says about international progressivism. Unauthorized Disclosure went on to talk about how the NBA got wrapped up into all of this. And finally, we just heard Democracy Now! explaining the police crackdown in Hong Kong in the wake of China's 70th anniversary of communism celebrations. Members will hear more on this topic, including some of the strange nuances of Hong Kong occupying this middle ground between colony and free society, the future of the planned full integration of Hong Kong into China, and more on the role of outside influences, including from the U.S., on the protests. To hear that and all of our bonus content, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey Jay, it's Alan from Connecticut. Did I call in about this already? I don't even know. I'm kind of lost. I didn't know what episode it is. Talking about the young generation, they're voting, how they're turning out in droves better than previously ever done, blah, blah, blah. I didn't have my graph paper. I didn't have my calculator. I couldn't do the charts. I couldn't figure it out. I was driving. So forgive me. But the premise of the episode was almost, or at least my takeaway was that our hope is in this new generation and that this new generation is going to save us in 2020. And, and red flags and, and, and flares went up like warning, danger. Like you cannot put the hopes on doing right 
with the new generation. We need to take responsibility for ourselves. And although hindsight 2020, looking back at what happens in 2020, if you want to look at that and analyze it, that's great. But my takeaway from that episode was how the younger generation is turning out for voting unlike ever before and they are voting more progressive and i'm just warning signs are like that's putting us older generations if i may be so bold to sit back on our haunches saying that the younger people are going to save us i call bullshit um we need we we need to take this seriously we can't there's no there's no silver bullet in a gun that's going to save us. We need to be active. We cannot rely on statistics and reporting like this. As accurate as they may be for 2018, we cannot count on that for 2020. If nothing else, I kicked myself for understanding how, trying to understand how anybody could reelect Bush for the second term. And I remember agonizing as to how the country could not see what was coming and people don't see what's coming they see what's right in front of them and if we don't call attention to it and we don't stand up and start screaming and yelling and expect our 18 to 24 year olds to do the screaming for us we are sadly mistaken so with all due respect to that episode please Don't let it persuade you to think that there's some silver bullet somewhere. We must act. We must continue to fight until we get what we need. Just my thoughts. Thanks. Stay awesome. Hey, Jay. It's James close to Sacramento, California. Um, I've been uh, wanting to call in about this for a while. Uh, your show three weeks ago was uh, talking about good old uh, environmentalism, and um, the one uh, word that uh, comes up to my mind, and I know there are other people out there who are going to say this is uh, um, this is rather maybe oversimplified way of looking at it, or a naive way of looking at it, but I think it's uh, personally, I think it's the only way we can look at it, uh, so that we're not totally um, uh, feeling helpless when looking at the enormity of the fact that uh, you know, in decades' time, this planet may be start becoming unlivable. There's only one way we can tackle this, and that's with one word: together. One word needs to permeate our brains in regards to um, uh, our environmental catastrophe um, or. Instead of these namby-pamby words like climate change, let's call it what it is, an emergency. That's what it is. We have to use that word. And that means urgent action is needed, not by one person, but by all of us. All of us. We need to tackle this like we tackle a war, like we did with World War II. When not, it's not just one nation, our nation, but all, all nations need to get together, all of humanity, and tackle this problem together together you know we, we got to stop thinking independently you know our, our sense we are so hyper focused on independence in this country but this is not something that you know we can do independently we have got to we have got to think that we're all in this together it's only one way humanity has got to tackle this 
and come together. Thank you. Hey, Jay. Uh, this is Erica, and I'm a student at Illinois State University. I just got to say that I love what you're doing about advertisements and trying to get rid of them and instead deciding to rely on us, the listeners. And even though I can't afford much, I am willing to pitch in a couple dollars a month. And I just got to say thank you for all the content. And your show has really enlightened me and helped me out. So I just want to say thank you. And and that'll be it. So thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, in response to Alan, uh, I, I completely agree with anyone who ever says that we shouldn't let... Uh, the older generations off the hook as as an ostensible member of one of the uh, younger generations I'm, I'm either the youngest generation x or i actually think of myself more often as uh, as the oldest millennial i'm always in favor of uh, of keeping the older generation on the hook for as long as possible uh, second James, um, careful with that talk about togetherness, uh, as we all know, togetherness and, you know, working together for the sake of the common good, uh, leads straight to socialism, which leads straight to communism, which is de facto bad. Therefore working together is bad. So, so just be careful with that kind of rhetoric. And then third, uh, Erica, thanks for your comments and for chipping in, which, which leads me to, um, a little bit more talk about our current fundraiser and, and membership levels. Um, it's, it's got me thinking about, like, I was just reminiscing about, uh, the old school days of when we were all just figuring this whole thing out. Uh, you know, I was sort of getting my footing in this whole progressive media landscape around the same time as sort of the the early days of the Young Turks and the Majority Report version two. They used to be on Air America Radio and then transitioned to an independent show. So version two was coming along, you know, when I was uh, in my early days as well. David Pakman, shows like this. And and so there there was something that we all kind of did in our own ways. We had fun and interesting names for all of the different levels of membership. You know, there's usually like basic membership, but then if you wanted to pledge a little bit more, it came with a cool nickname. So I've continued that tradition. Um, I, I just haven't talked about it much recently. But one, one of my favorite lists of membership level names was always from the majority report you know sam's a a funny guy and he came up with some some funny levels so for the majority report like basic level was just majority reporter makes sense right and then uh, you know his last name being cedar you could be a cedarista was the next level up and these all harken back to like the george w bush iraq war years and so you could be a a dirty effing hippie uh, one level up, and beyond that, 
professional leftist. And I, I got to be honest, that that's a phrase that I remember existing, but I don't remember why. Um, some Someone will write in to remind me. Um, here's my guess. Was it what Rahm Emanuel said when he said that professional leftists are retarded? Um, th- that's my guess, but I, I, I can't recall exactly. I, I think it predated that, though. So... Anyway, for some time from the from the Bush years, uh, someone was called a professional leftist, and and that stuck for for a little while. One up from that was super Marxist, which I think speaks for itself. And then the next one up, I think, is the best one, especially especially for the the day and age. You have to remember from from the Iraq War years, um, the the for for five hundred dollars a month, if you wanted to donate five hundred dollars a month to the Majority Report. You could be French, and and it came with all the benefits of being French: the wine, the baguettes, etc. And and then I think, and then the very top level uh, for the, for supporting the Majority Report, if you donated a thousand dollars a month, you could just be Sam Cedar. You could live his life, move into his house, the whole bit. That that was that was his pitch. So I've gone through a few different phases of of different names for my membership levels. I can't remember what the last set was. I I just remember that it the highest level was George Soros. I and maybe I think the next to the highest level was Satan, and the highest level was George Soros. Um, so you, you you get the sense of of uh, how evil you could become the the higher your donation level. So so anyway. Um, there's a uh, you know current slate of membership levels i'll tell you what those are but there's been an update recently which is what's making me think to tell you all of this in the first place so so for us patrons that's just anyone who donates 2 bucks or more if if you're in the system you're a patron at 6 dollars a month you're a member and that that's where you get all the benefits the the ad free shows and the uh, the bonus content that that's membership level and and you get all the the bonus content. Beyond that, if you just want to donate more to help support the show even more, then you can you can level up to professional protester. That's a new one based on uh, our current era after professional protesters came into vogue. Uh, beyond that, social justice warrior, uh, so, some of the most feared of of the uh, of the left, maybe only being eclipsed by. The radical leftist uh, is, is one of our highest levels. But recently, we had a, a listener who wanted to donate more than the radical leftist. And the way the Patreon system works is you have to sign up for one of our existing tiers. Otherwise, the bonus content feed doesn't work. Like you have to be assigned a tier so that the system knows which bonus content to give you. But if you want to donate, outside of the tiers you want to donate more or or you know some odd number then you may not get the bonus content so dave from olympia tried to sign up and donate more than the radical leftist level but then he stopped getting all the bonus content so he got in touch and you know we had to figure out what to do and and my best conclusion i my, my best solution to all of this was now there just is a dave from olympia level so if you want to support the show more than a social justice warrior, more than a radical leftist, you too could be 
Dave from Olympia. I mean, only Dave from Olympia is, is himself uh, literally, but in spirit, you could be Dave from Olympia if you wanted to support the show as much as he does. So that's where the levels stand today. But actually, I came up with another one just today that that I think I may need to work in there at some point and add a level for uh, enemy of the people. That you know, that's an, another uh, modern classic I wouldn't have thought of before, but but is is great for for today's climate, right? So now you know. You know, it's not just the bonus content you get, and it's not just the warm and fuzzy feeling you'll have for supporting the show. Little did you know, in all likelihood, supporting the show actually comes with a nickname, too. I, I really should have been mentioning this more recently. So again, if you want to sign up, the address is patreon.com slash left, and of course, that is linked in the show notes. Now, before we go, a quick reminder that the Forecast Fest is your source for the latest election news, from debate previews and recaps to analysis of how voters are leaning in the early primary states. Every week, hosts Harry Inton, Kate Baldwin, and John Avalon bring you all the data and analysis you need to get smart and stay smart this election season. Subscribe to the Forecast Fest wherever you get your podcasts. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on Patreon, as that is absolutely how the program survives now more than ever. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Now, today's Limerick is covering some international news. Limericky News on Twitter is reporting on Justin Trudeau's re-election to prime minister in Canada, having defeated the far right wing that was making inroads. Uh, but all this happened after Trudeau's instances of black and brown face came to light. Today, the one thing Trudeau knows is that everything's coming up roses, though it needs to be noted many liberals voted while nauseously holding their noses. (laughs) 